Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, progressive Florida Governor Ruben Askew, who promoted racial equality and ethics in government, died on March 13th at the age of 85. We'll talk with Askew biographer and political writer Martin Dykeman. Things we thought were one way back then, in the hindsight of history, and people who are willing to talk then, who are not willing to talk then, or are willing to talk now, you find out a completely different perspective. We'll look at unique panoramic photographs of large groups of people in Florida. So we're looking at a picture that's about five feet long and eight inches wide, and it covers this full 180-degree field view. And we'll discuss the WPA Guide to Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Ruben Odiaskew and the Golden Age of Florida Politics is the latest book by Martin Dykeman. His other books are Floridian of His Century, The Courage of Governor Leroy Collins, and A Most Disorderly Court, Scandal and Reform in the Florida Judiciary. For nearly four decades, Martin Dykeman was a reporter and associate editor of the St. Petersburg Times, where his focus was primarily on Florida government and politics. That experience gave him a lot of great background material for the books he is now writing. Now, I didn't cover Leroy Collins, uh, who is so um, vital to the development of politics in Florida, but I knew many of the people that had worked for him and had the opportunity to see how his example uh, informed their lives. Uh, Everything else that I've written about was something that came up during the course of my work as a journalist in, in Tallahassee. Martin Dykeman's first book, published in 2006, is Floridian of His Century, The Courage of Governor Leroy Collins. Dykeman says that Collins started out as a segregationist, but had a dramatic change of heart that had a profound impact on Florida history. There were some members of his family who didn't particularly like the treatment of the book because I said he was a segregationist, or he campaigned as one. Now, you never know what's in a person's heart, but it's important to remember, he was a child of his times, brought up in uh, the Deep South in Tallahassee. At that time, was the Deep South, and it was never... Came, he was never that kind of segregationist to put on a white sheet and went out and hurt people. That was He was horrified by that thing. In fact, he passed one of the first bills to unmask the Ku Klux Klan. But he was never prepared to challenge segregation per se until he became governor and had to realize that the world was changing and he needed to change with it. 
Uh, many Southern politicians did not make that transi transition nearly as quickly or as gracefully as he did. But in the span of a mere 10 years, he went from saying segregation is our way of life and our law and I will do everything I can to preserve it, to declaring that civil rights is the most important issue of our time. 10 years, that's, that's quite a rapid evolution. Governor Collins really helped to usher in the new era of civil rights, and not just in Florida, thanks to President Lyndon Johnson. He was the founding director of the Community Relations Service, and until, uh, until I did this research and listened to the Johnson tapes, which were not available earlier, I did not know, nor did anybody in his family know, that he had not been Johnson's first choice for a job that everyone else knew would destroy his political career. And I think he knew it too, but he said he was too much of a patriot to turn it down. To be seen working in the field of civil rights, even in the position of a mediator, and that's what his job was, was hardly the way to win an election in a state that was still trying to shed its southern segregationist Confederate history. In fact, when Johnson was talking about that with um, George Smathers, a uh, person who was uh, afraid that Collins might run against him, they shared a laugh over the fact that it wouldn't be too good for Collins' first political career. Now, he might have survived it had the job not taken him to Selma, uh, where after the march was already underway, he went to the, to the marchers to negotiate their peaceful entrance into the capital of Montgomery. In order to do that, he had to talk to them. They were already marching down the road. So Collins got out of his car, walked with the marchers for about a mile where he was talking with Martin Luther King. A cameraman took a picture of that and it appeared in all the Florida newspapers that same day. When Collins got home to the airport in Tallahassee that night, he called his wife and said, there's no taxi here, can you come and get me? She said, well, no, I can't. The house is full of sleeping grandchildren. I said, well, I can't get a cab. How am I going to get home? Well, she said, you might as well march. She was upset. Uh, and he t Collins himself told the story many times, sort of ruefully, after a while, with a little bit of a smile. Uh, but that I think that hurt him terribly when he ran for the U.S. Senate in Florida in 1968. That picture was everywhere. Martin Dykeman's second book, published in 2008, is A Most Disorderly Court, Scandal and Reform in the Florida Judiciary. Dykeman was one of the primary reporters to expose the horrible behavior of Florida's Supreme Court in the 1970s. He explains what was going on. Most of the judges there had gotten there through traditional politics, either through winning an election that the public didn't care about and voted for the first name on the ballot, or because the governor had appointed them for a political favor. The, um, and their ethics were the kind of ethics you might hope not to see in a judge, and you, you, it's bad enough when you see them in, in, in elected politicians in one case, uh, he'd barely gotten to Tallahassee when he, uh, when he tried to fix a case for a campaign supporter pending before a circuit court in, the, in North Florida. Uh, another judge uh, actually tried to fix a case for, um, for some campaign supporters, and that was a criminal case. And when he couldn't persuade the District Court of Appeal to overturn the conviction, he took part in overturning it himself. I reported in that man's case that he had taken a $10,000 bribe and small bills dumped in his desk in the Supreme Court building. Those two justices resigned. A third justice was supposed to write the opinion in a major case affecting how utilities would be treated, how the corporate tax would be treated for rate-making purposes. He was having trouble writing it, so, so he was playing golf with an attorney, an old friend who happened to be an attorney for one of the companies affected by the suit. 
uh, should not have been talking about the case with, with, with him at all and probably should not even have been playing golf with him. But they not only talked about the case, but it was agreed that the lawyer would write what amounted to be a proposed opinion for the court, the other side knowing nothing about this. The uh, justice finally got cold feet when his law clerk found the document and said, what the blankety-blank is this? And he went in the men's room with the, with the clerk and decided to get rid of the incriminating evidence by tearing it up into strips and flushing it down the toilet. But another justice also had a copy of it. He didn't know that. The other justice used it to write an opinion. When the law clerk saw that, they blew the whistle. It all got out to the press, mostly through me. Finally, there was a big investigation. Two of the justices involved in all these things had to resign. The third one, the golf-playing justice, uh, was let off on his promise to take a mental exam that the legislative committee assumed would get him retired for disability. He passed it instead and spent the rest of his career boasting that he was the only justice who could prove his sanity. When Martin Dykeman's book about the Florida Supreme Court was published, lawyers and judges who had graduated from Florida law schools in the last three decades were stunned that they had never been told about the scandals Dykeman uncovered in the 1970s. Dykeman says he is very concerned about the short institutional memory in our state. That's probably the worst thing in Florida right now. Term limits, one of the four worst mistakes Florida voters ever made, have made a legislature a, a ship of fools because nobody has any memory of what went before. That's one reason we wrote the book, The Most Disorderly Court, to try to remind people what happens when politics is allowed to infect the courts. Uh, during that period, Governor Askew created nominating commissions, which he could not control to select candidates for judgeships. And that worked fine until 2001 when the legislature gave the governor the power to appoint all nine members of each commission. Uh, politics is coming back into the courts. Uh, we still have elections for the trial courts, but the courts I'm worried about are the appeals courts where public policy is decided and the Constitution is interpreted and the laws are applied. Uh, that's, they're going to be political again, and they're going to have another ethical crisis again. Some may say you already had one. The First District Court of Appeal Courthouse scandal in Tallahassee. The judge responsible for that expensive atrocity thought nothing of sitting in a case involving the landowner, where they intended to build the building, and whose dispensation they might have needed, though it turned out they didn't, to go ahead with it. But to me, that was an ethical Trans transgression of the highest order, and yet they haven't charged him with it. Martin Dykeman's latest book, published in 2011, is called Ruben Odie Askew and the Golden Age of Florida Politics. Askew was part of the reform movement that cleaned up the problems Dykeman wrote about in a most disorderly court. Oh, well, he was one of the legislators that period, certainly, and I would try to point out in the book, somebody said I put too many people in the book, sort of like Mozart having too many notes in his operas, but there really was. This is a story about an age, not just the one man, although he was emblematic of it. It's his story that I tell in detail, but there were so many others who were public-spirited people, liberated by the reapportionment decisions of the Supreme Court, that gave it made Florida's modern legislature, and I, I have a. It takes you can't say it in, without catching your breath about a dozen times. But there was a laundry list of maybe fifty major accomplishments during this period: pollution control, environmental protection, a reorganization of the executive branch and the judiciary. Askew's crowning achievements probably were in trying to give us a nonpartisan, independent. Judiciary, And when people talk about the independence of the judiciary, what they really mean is the integrity. Askew was strongly for that. If I would say that was probably his greatest contribution, and it's being eroded. And I wish the people would understand that and rise up and do something about it.
To be able to call Reuben Askew's era the Golden Age indicates that we have left that period and entered something less than golden. Dykeman says that many of the great achievements of Florida's golden age of politics have been lost. Well, most of them have been lost. Askew's other great achievement was to pass a corporate profits tax that the new governor wants to repeal. Uh, and growth management has been effectively repealed. Uh, the pollution control agencies have been weakened. Uh, governor Graham, his successor, tried to emphasize education, and uh, now nobody wants to spend any money on that. Uh, the legislature is so intensely partisan that the majority party sees no need at any occasion to reach a compromise with the minority. That was certainly not the case back in the 1970s when the Democrats were in power and the Republicans were the minority. But the fact that they worked together owed to the quality of leadership on both sides. The Democratic Speaker Dick Pettigrew and the Republican House Leader Don Reed were good personal friends. And they thought it was important to be that way. The court reforms I described, uh, the, the, the Florida's modern court system, without Reed, it couldn't have happened. And both the governor and the, and the speaker paid him tribute to that. And that's a lasting achievement. That was a perfect example of what happens when people work in a bipartisan way toward a common objective. You don't see that in Washington any longer. You don't see it in Tallahassee. There are many reasons, but we've got to do something about it. Working under newspaper deadlines is exciting, but Dykeman is now enjoying the freedom to delve deeper into his subjects in book form. Oh, absolutely. And once in a while, you find things you never knew. I've got some instances in the book, things we thought were one way back then, in the hindsight of history, and people who are willing to talk then, who are not willing to talk then or are willing to talk now, you find out a completely different perspective. You also find things in the archives you didn't know were there. Martin Dykeman's latest book is Ruben Odiascu and the Golden Age of Florida Politics, published by the University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to search the Library of Florida History collection, listen to archived editions of this program, watch exclusive video, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our newsletter, The Society Report, and our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, the FHS Archive has a large collection of photographs, including some unique panoramic images. 
Yeah, that's right. In the collection, we have uh, somewhere around 6,000 uh, photographs, and they range in date from the uh, late 19th century into the into the 20th century, and, and a few from the 21st century, and they all document different aspects of Florida history and at different times. Uh, but what we're looking at today, specifically, are panoramic photographs, and these are really fascinating, and they're and they're uh, very visually grabbing. Uh, these panoramic photographs are essentially a 180 degree view of a particular scene, but they're stretched out in a linear fashion. So we're looking at a picture that's about five feet long and eight inches wide and it covers this full 180-degree uh, field view. And they're really interesting. They were popular in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, and were generally used for, for photographing large groups. Yeah, as, as you say, most of these look as if they were, were done as panoramic views uh, specifically to catch large groups of people. Tell us a little bit about what types of groups are photographed here. Sure. Well, I've just pulled a sample of some of our panoramic views, and uh, more often than not, uh, these images were utilized, or these uh, types of, of uh, this method was utilized for photographing large groups. And most of the images we see are, are uh, still images. So at the time, uh, there was still kind of a long exposure time. So we needed, essentially the photographer needed people to sit still. So they had to be staged photographs. So most of the images that we see are of these large groups of people uh, standing in one place, uh, usually in, in, in the best lighting possible so that you can see very great detail in these images. Um, we're actually looking at one right now that was taken at... Uh, uh, a World War One training uh, training camp up in uh, in Jacksonville, Camp uh, Joseph E. Johnson, and this is dated uh, March fourth, nineteen eighteen. And as you see in the photograph, we have over a thousand people, mm. right? That covers this full one hundred and eighty degree view. But if you look closely, you can actually distinguish individual faces. There's incredible detail in these photographs. So uh, they're really important for, uh, in, for use as a, as a historical record. You, know, you can actually, like I said, make out faces. You can see activity in the background. A few are a little bit blurry if people are sort of moving quickly past. Uh, but as long as everyone was standing still, you get this incredible image, and, and you really get a very unique snapshot of a certain period in time. But we also have a lot of special events. Uh, of course, in 2013, we were uh, commemorating the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state. Well, in the early 20th century, up in St. Augustine, they used to hold uh, these reenactments of what they thought the uh, landing of Ponce de Leon sort of looked like, you know, with uh, meeting Native Americans. And we have a really great, a series of really great panoramic shots of this uh, reenactment. And it's actually right in front of the, the Castillo de San Marcos, a large fort in St. Augustine. And it shows men on horseback in this. Uh, you can see quite a bit of activity, uh, but you can see that it's taken from a, a bandstand. And there are thousands of people sort of out in this crowd watching this uh, really interesting, interesting event that we, we really don't see that, that often anymore. Well, was special equipment required to capture these panoramic views? Yeah, and that's an interesting point. Um, you know, at the time, about the turn of the 20th century, this is when uh, photography is, is becoming um, a little more easily accessible for the common person. They can buy uh, cameras. But these circuit cameras, these uh, panoramic cameras, were actually a little bit more difficult to operate. They use what we call circuit cameras. And essentially, it's a large format, usually an 8x10 uh, viewfinder camera, but it's mounted on a turret. And the camera actually pans, usually from left to right. And as the camera is panning from left to right in this full 180-degree view, you have film on the inside on a roll that's panning in the opposite direction from uh, left to right. So it's actually moving against the movement of the camera, and it's exposing this entire long sheet of roll film so that you get a five-foot-long piece of film, but you're also moving the camera and getting a different uh, a different. Um, 
viewpoint. So it's an interesting uh, uh an interesting process, and usually professional photographers were able to master the process, but there were smaller uh, panoramic uh, cameras that usually didn't pan more than, you know, a couple of inches. Uh, but it was a, a popular in the early early 20th century, about the, the 1920s, kind of faded out of popularity in the 1930s and 40s. Well, you mentioned the soldiers here and the reenactment of the landing of Ponce de Leon. Uh, what are some of the other images we have here? Well, it really, uh, they, they range in, in topic. We actually have one that I, I pulled from the archive of a the State Convention of Christian Endeavor uh, Society, which is kind of a precursor to the a modern uh, non-denominational youth ministry that we see nationwide. And this is dated 1927. And it's just a group of, of teenagers <laughs> standing in front of a building with signs, you know, something similar that we would see today when they say, you know, you're at a convention and they, they line everybody up for, for a large shoot. Uh, they would hire a professional photographer, stand outside of a building, uh, set up and stand as still as possible for as long as possible and they get this really interesting uh, really interesting view well great well thank you ben sure thank you ben DiBiase is director of educational resources for the florida historical society and archivist at the library of florida history in coco This is Florida Frontiers. Important Florida writers such as Stetson Kennedy and Zora Neale Hurston contributed their talents to the WPA Guide to Florida. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. At various places, they take you off the highway into an area, even into an orange grove where they say, hey, move off the highway here and stop at this orange stand here and the um, owner will allow you to go out and pick some oranges off the trees, that sort of thing. And then often take you down a dirt road or a shell road into very obscure places that you would never know existed were it not for the WPA guide. That was Dr. Jack Lane, Weddell Professor Emeritus of History at Rollins College. He sat down and spoke to me about the Florida WPA guide, which was a book produced during the Depression. Here he tells me, what the WPA was. Someone got the bright idea that uh, during, uh, after the uh, passage of the uh, Works Project Administration, that why not create agencies that would provide work opportunities for people where they could actually use their skills. And this was particularly true of artists. So the uh, government under the WPA created um, federal projects, they called them, four of them. One of them was the in music, the other was in art, in painting, the other was in uh, architecture, and the other, the other one was in literature, in writing. 
And so in the, in the writing part, they hired a group of people in the states to create guides to that state. And the purpose was not only to show people what was there, but to reveal to the American people how rich local cultures were in this country. Dr. Lane explains that these books were important to travelers in Florida during this period. He tells me what interesting facts readers might find in these books. You get a picture here of Florida as you would view it if you were driving down one of the two-lane roads in the 1930s. And they would reveal aspects or, or parts of Florida that were taking place alongside that road of what historians of landscape have called the ordinary landscape. So, for example, they, they have a whole section in there in which they deal with signs along the side of the road and what these signs were and how they served the, the needs of the local people. And so there's a whole section on it. It's, it's, fa- it's fascinating. Uh, the, and they have comments on those signs and what they were and what they, their purposes were. Dr. Lane tells me that this book cataloged a way of life as well as scenic byways lost today. We have the internet and even sophisticated GPS systems on our phones and in our cars to guide us. And if we're looking for some place off the beaten path, we can find it with a click of our mouse or a tap of our smartphones. But this book took people to small rural communities the average driver might be unaware. Dr. Lane speculates as to what that might have been like. For, for one thing, you can't drive very fast down the roads. And the other is you're going to be driving through ta- little towns and you're going to be stopping off at places and seeing these places. This was a whole different world that people encountered in Florida mainly because they had to go down these two-lane roads. But most of them were, were uh, taking people into the rural areas where there was interaction. Here, Dr. Lane leaves us with a reminder of a way of traveling now lost. Well, the four-lane expressways destroyed that uh, way of life. It destroyed that kind of travel. Um, Whizzing through areas, barely even seeing, unable to get off the road except at certain places. Destroyed a a, a kind of travel that mitigated against this kind of interaction. And so we, when, when, you, um, when you leave the two-lane highway, you, lead, you um, leave a whole another experience behind. And that experience is not interaction. That was Dr. Jack Lane, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to check out the Florida Frontiers blog. You can also follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.